Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today, our guest is Sean Pendergast. And Sean is the lead host of Houston's top-rated sports talk radio show on Houston Sports Radio 610. He's also the host of the Houston Texans pre- and post-game shows, and he's the host of the nationally syndicated Sean Pendergast Show weekly on CBS Sports Radio. And if you have not heard Sean's story, you are really in for a treat. It is an incredible story of perseverance and dedication. It's certainly a story of belief and really a comeback story after he faced some insanely difficult setbacks all in a short period of time. As you might imagine, given his profession, Sean is eloquent, he is a lot of fun, and he knows something about telling a story. However, in my opinion, what separates Sean is his authenticity, his willingness to speak honestly and be vulnerable in spaces that many others would choose not to be. I asked Sean to walk us through what were some extremely challenging personal moments in his journey, and he did so unabashedly. And I tell you what, I'm extremely grateful for that because I think that's the place where every one of you guys are going to learn something. It's the place where I learned something. And I think it's probably the most compelling part of this interview. Sean, this is one of my favorite conversations. I can't thank you enough for joining me. It was absolutely beautiful, bud. Thank you again for being a part of this. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Pendergast. All right, Sean, welcome. What's up? Well, thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for coming on to share your story, all that good stuff. I I found so many parallels between your journey and mine, so there's a lot I want to collect your perspective on. And I'm going to warn you, most of it has nothing to do with sports or sports radio, but I've got a good feeling about you. I got a good feeling about this. So thank you for coming. Of course, man. I appreciate you having me, Clay. I, I'm, uh, I'm, exci- I'm excited about this. I, li- I love sharing my story. I think there's nuggets to be learned from my successes and my failures. So I'm excited to uh, excited to chat about it with you, man. No yeah. doubt. Well, I'm going to start you in an interesting place and then we'll kind of back up. So I want to start with your favorite interview ever. I know that your favorite interview took place at the Super Bowl in Phoenix, but the interesting thing is it had nothing to do with sports, which is often where we end up on this podcast. So Walk us through how that interview came together, who it was with, and what kind of things you covered. Yeah, well, the Super Bowl every year they they've got Radio Row there, where all these stations come in from you know just to set the scene for for people listening. All the different sports stations from around the country in the different cities all come in, and there it's a big convention center, and we sit there for a week and we do we do radio, and most of the guests that come by are football related. You know, they're retired players, current players, coaches, commentators, things like that. But you do get the occasional non-football or even non-sports interview. And it was Phoenix. It was the 2015 season, I think. And I get a phone call as we're sitting there doing doing the show. I was in afternoons at that time with Rich Lord and Ted Johnson on Sports Radio 610. And I get a text from John McClain, the legendary Houston Chronicle football writer. And he was over at some other function in another facility in Phoenix. And he texted me and said, do you want the guy who shot Osama bin Laden on your show? And I said, uh, yeah, like today, you know, or, you know, like, and he said, uh, he said, I'm, I'm with him and his dad right now at some NFL function. He was getting, his name's Rob O'Neill. And I didn't know his name. You know, I said, yeah. And John texts me back. He says, his name's Rob O'Neill. So when's the interview going to take place? He'll be there in five minutes. (laughs) Okay. All right. And this is one of those moments where you you now you're thinking on your feet. You know, now you're thinking, okay, I've been talking to these players and coaches about the matchup in the Super Bowl, what their accomplishment is they've been most proud of. A lot of them, honestly, Clay, they're hawking product. So we're talking about, well, tell us a little bit about Gatorade and things like that. And now all of a sudden you got the guy coming over who changed history, right? So yeah, Rob O'Neill came over and he sat down, very normal guy. And I remember maybe for the first time in my career, and at that point I'd been in radio about eight years, 
And maybe for the first time in my career, my mind was racing as to what my first question was going to be. 95% of the time, I know who I'm going to interview. So I've prepared the night before or I've prepared the morning of or whatever the case may be. But Super Bowl is like that. You know, Radio Row is like that. You get these impromptu interviews that drop out of nowhere. So you got to be ready. But most of the time, it's football people. So you've got your generic three or four questions. Doesn't matter who it is that sits down, I'll ask him this. Well, this guy shot Osama bin Laden. I can't ask him as the generic question what he thinks about the two teams that are going to match up on Sunday. You know, I mean, I could, but that's not why he's sitting down with us. Right. So my mind was racing like, what is the first question that you ask the person who shot Osama bin Laden? And my role on the show has always been I get us in and out of breaks. I'm the I'm in the lead chair on the show. So the first question is always going to be mine. My first question was, at what moment did you realize you had just changed history? And he had a great answer. He said, when the lights came on, he knew right away, like when the lights came on. And I said, I mean, you know, I asked him to describe what's that like? You turn the lights on and there is the to call him a villain is understating it, obviously, but the biggest villain on the face of the earth. And you've, you know, you've killed that guy. And he went on to describe it, but it's my favorite interview for both content reasons, because the content was completely different than anything we'd been doing that week or that we did normally on the show. And, and I, it was, it's my favorite interview also, because it put me in a, in a moment where I felt like I had to come up with something and I had to perform in that moment and in the lead chair, you know, how you come into that interview is how people are going to remember it and things like that. So I was proud of myself in that moment that, that I thought we did a really, really good interview with him. So that's one that I always look at fondly because I'll be honest with you, a lot of the sports interviews all kind of blend in with each other. You know, it's hard for me to say if you were to ask me my favorite sports interview, I don't know that I would go back to a specific interview. I would more probably think who my favorite guests were on the show, like repeatedly. Like I've had a lot of football players who've been frequent guests on the show that have been really enjoyable. But that one, that one's my favorite interview because it was such a departure from what we did. And our audience is bigger that week too. We had more people listening to it as well. Well, and to still a tagline from this show, it's bigger than sport. And there's something about getting beyond sport, which sport oftentimes paves that way for us but to tell a bigger story something that is more important i guess is the word i'm stretching for given that that is your favorite interview i have to ask do you find yourself wanting to steer or push conversations day to day towards more consequential topics and get beyond kind of typical post-game interview on-field questions I don't know if I've got a thirst to do that kind of thing. And I'll be honest, like our, our show, our station is, we're almost specifically coached to keep it to sports. I, I think the, the, the key thing to point out here is that that interview took place in 2015. The world has changed a lot since that interview in terms of what people look for in content in the arena that we're in. So we're, so we're almost not almost. I mean, we are encouraged to kind of stay away from stuff that's non-sports because if it's non-sports, it probably veers somewhere that's going to get people triggered politically or, Mm -hmm. you know, along those lines. And what we've learned is that one, we're not the store they come to for that sort of thing on a regular basis. It's one thing if you're on Radio Row and the guy who shot Osama bin Laden shows up and you interview him, that's a big deal. But just in terms, I think your question is a, a little more general than that. Like, is it something you feel like talking about more generally? I like talking about sports more than anything. It's why I got into this business. I enjoy those moments where we depart from it, whether it's talking to a, somebody who's in television or in this case, you know, a guy like Rob O'Neill who's who made history. But I think that the talk radio genre, whether it's sports or news or whatever, I think what we've learned in sports is that the second that you start to veer away from sports, it probably goes somewhere that divides the audience these days. And that's not good. Yeah, you know, that that's what we've learned is that the people who generally the people who listen and come into the store for sports talk come into the store to get away from some of those other yeah, things. Yeah, you so, understand your value proposition. Right, you understand your client base, and I think that's important. And I think there's a space for both, for sure. But one of the things are one of the reasons I pick sport as a reoccurring theme on this platform is because sport is often a pathway to these consequential conversations, or it is often a place like the Super Bowl where all of these aspects of cultures and society comes together. And if you pay attention, like you mentioned here lately, 
almost every consequential conversation is taking place in the world of sports. We've seen it with mental health and with race, how to accomplish difficult goals with one another, which I think athletes know better than most perseverance, self-sacrifice, all of those things take place. And I think that's one of the special things about sport, but I totally understand your perspective of understanding that's really not your lane and that's not what your customers are looking for yeah yeah that's it's it's customer service is what it boils down to well let's backtrack a bit your name is now synonymous with houston sports but you're not a native houstonian i understand where did you grow up and where did this fascination with sports begin i spent most of my formative years in connecticut just outside of Hartford, Connecticut. Moved there when I was in third or fourth grade. Who were so, your teams growing up? So I was a Hartford Whalers season ticket holder growing up. Okay. That's an NHL team that is now the Carolina Hurricanes. But I was a, uh, it was the only professional sports team in the state of Connecticut. So I was a Hartford Whalers season ticket holder. I was a Boston Red Sox fan. I was a Pittsburgh Steeler fan because I was born in Pittsburgh. And then basketball, I was the I was a Sixers fan because my mom was from Philadelphia. You were all over the board. All over the board. Okay. All over the board. Which has made it very easy for me to just embrace all the Houston teams once I moved here. Like I was I've probably lived and died more by the Houston team since moving here as an adult. And now that I'm in the sports radio business, obviously, there's a whole bunch of reasons why the Houston sports team success are crucial to me, you know, both emotionally and 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 professionally. But those are the teams I grew up rooting for. I was always a big sports fan. I was never a great athlete, but I was always a huge sports fan. Going to games, watching games, memorizing statistics. I would scour the sports page on Sundays. We used to get the Boston Globe Sunday paper at my house in Hartford, Connecticut. I would get it specifically just to read Peter Gammon's notebook section, which was legendary back in the day in the Boston Globe. And the Sunday paper, and I mean, you, you'll you appreciate this as a former baseball player. You know, the Sunday paper was, for years and years, the only place you could get the, the batting averages of every player in baseball. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For, you know, during the week, you'd maybe have, maybe have just the Red Sox stats, but holy cow, here comes the Sunday paper, and now I can see what Mike Schmidt is batting. You know, think, it would list every player in baseball and what their batting average was. So I was that kind of sports fan, kind of a, you know, a, a nerdy sports fan probably is how I would categorize it. How I got my passion to start thinking about radio, I'll never forget. I was sitting there one night. I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and I'm listening to the radio in my house, terrestrial radio. This is probably 1980, 81, something like that. And WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut, the AM news station there, I'm listening, I'm, and, and they, have a, they had a half-hour sports talk show. That was it. It wasn't an all-sports station. They had a half-hour sports talk show called The Arnold Dean Show. The dean of sports, Arnold Dean, this older guy. And for that half hour, he would just take phone calls about sports. And I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. There are people calling a radio show and they're just having sports conversations. And I remember me and a buddy, John Perigini is his name. We ended up going to high school and college together. We would call the Arnold Dean show at like 12 or 13 years old. And you had to be 18 to call in. So we would try to disguise our voices. And we sounded not anywhere close to 18 years old. But he'd let us on because we always actually brought like good questions and opinions and things like that. So that was my first exposure to sports talk radio is just sort of a, just a, a show type. And then when I got into high school, we lived fairly close to New York city. So that's when WFAN became the first all sports station in the country in 1987. And that's when I thought this is the coolest thing. Now there's a station where they talk about sports all the time, like 24 hours a day. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. So that's where my my sports interest is always there. The interest in radio going, wow, you know, this is before the internet and everything. Like, wow, this is where people come share their... I have so many opinions in my head. I can actually pick up a phone and tell somebody my opinion on things. So that that was always... And of course, from there, the, the genre just exploded after WFA. it WFAN. sounds like you were kind of this gregarious extrovert from a very young child. Very much so. Yeah, very, very much so. At least when it came to sports. What about outside of sports? Did you have heroes or influences growing up from outside of the sports world or most of it was within sports? I would say, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, her, heroes is an interesting term because to me... Like heroes are people that do things that are, that are, you know, life and death and stuff like that. And nothing that I'm doing now is life and death. But I guess if we use heroes in the terms, in terms of either people who had traits that I admired that I try to incorporate or now even things that I incorporate into my routine on the radio or into my routine 
to be successful, those kind of things. I would say most of my heroes are probably not even famous people, you know, like yeah. the the first sales manager I ever worked for when I was in, and we'll get into my corporate background before I got into radio, but I was in sales for 15 years before I got into radio. The first sales manager I ever worked for was somebody who really educated me on goal setting and things like that. And and just the the process of selling. And I tell my kids this all the time, everything is sales. That's what I learned when I was in sales is that sales isn't just the product I'm going to sell. You're selling yourself when you sit down in an interview. You're selling yourself. You're selling yourself when you sit down at a table and you're either polite or rude to the server at the table, that kind of thing. Everything is sales. His name's Mike Pandich and he was one of the first people I ever I ever worked for. Another guy that I that brought me here to Houston in 1994 that helped transfer me down here is another sales manager. I had his name Steve Houtman. He passed away a couple of years ago. If I'm using heroes in terms of people that I've tried to pattern my life after or that have done things for me that have helped me advance, and I don't even know if they know that that's you know they they know how I feel about them, but I don't know if they ever know how I, that I felt that strongly about incorporating things into into my routine. I guess probably the most famous person I would consider under this category of uh, either a hero or, or a role model. Yeah, or an influence. An influence would be Jim Rome. Okay. You know, the radio host, the nationally syndicated radio host who was, his show is why I'm on the radio now. It's literally while I'm on the radio, why I'm on the radio. I was a caller to his show starting in like 1997. Well, so we're that, certainly going to get there. So yeah, hold that thought for a while. But I agree with you. I'm protective of the word hero too. And I've asked that question to many people. And that's why I always say hero or influence, because when I think hero, I think my mother and my father, but I think it gets a little dangerous to deify anyone yeah. um, and, and put them in that category that is that far away from you. So I, I totally feel you there. Well, let's move on to... Notre Dame. You made your way to the University of Notre Dame, who's made a bit of news here. As of <laughs> no way. kidding. I'm sure you're sick of talking about that after this morning. But you said you did some radio in college. Yeah. And I saw a quote that you said you wish you had gone into radio. And it sounds like from a young age, you had this innate draw towards radio. I'm curious why you think you didn't choose that path out of college. Yeah, I think I, I'll be honest with you. Like, I, I mean, Notre Dame is a school with a lot of people who are very goal oriented from the get go. I was never I never grew up super goal oriented. I was intelligent and I tested well and I had good grades and I was I was a diligent worker, but I never had it ingrained in me. You know, grew up in a good family and everything successful Never had it ingrained in me though to like, what's my eye on the prize? Like, where, what am I striving for here? I also was never super intellectually stimulated in college. Like, I majored in finance. If I like, that's one of the things I would go back and totally do over again. Is I'd probably major in something that was broadcasting. I grew up in a pretty affluent town where success was very financially driven. So, finance major was something that was kind of. You know, like, oh, this is what all people in Simsbury, Connecticut path. do. Yeah. yeah, they get into the stock market or they get into this or they get into that. I got a degree in finance from the University of Notre Dame. My grades were okay. They were fine. I had a lot of fun in college. I, I could have worked harder. Classroom wasn't all that interesting to me and whatnot. So I found myself at the end of college with with a degree, but no real passion for what I'd studied. Nobody really to impress upon me, like you have this passion for radio, go do it. That's why when you ask me about my heroes or my influences, and the first two people I brought up are people who finally showed me what it was like to set goals and to have something to shoot for. I got into sales right out of college because I didn't see myself as either being interested or qualified to do anything else. I knew I wanted to make good money. And that might have been some other reason why I didn't get into radio at the time is I had nobody to tell me like, look, if you have a passion for something, money's not the most important thing when you're 22 years old. Or it's, I mean, for some people it is, you know, for some people grow up in a different situation than I did. I didn't have to make a ton of money right out of college because I would have always had my parents to support me at least for a little while. But I had never had those conversations about what do you really want to do? So I got into sales because I needed a job and I wanted to, you know, move into my own apartment and things like that. It was really sales that kind of got me focused on goal setting, attaining quotas, being competitive. And the biggest thing that got me kind of straying away from the whole radio thing was I started to make good money. It turns out I was good at it. I was a good salesperson. 
the more you do something where you're setting up a certain lifestyle right out of college, the further away you get from being able to go back and do the thing you might be passionate about, which generates no income or very low income, that kind of thing. And and back when I was getting into the corporate world, getting out of college, a podcast didn't even exist. You know, that it's the wild, wild, as you know, it's the wild, wild west now. If you want to sit down, if you want to get into the audio realm, do what we're doing and sit down. Let's start talking, you know? Well, I think that comfort can lead to complacency, but our stories sound very similar coming out of college. I was asking the same questions you were. Instead of asking, am I passionate about the underlying product or industry? Am I passionate about this community I'm joining? I was asking, how much am I going to make? What's my financial growth look like? How quickly can I invest along with the partners? How quickly can I become an owner? And I also think oftentimes we think following your dreams or a passion is the easy route. It's the rewarding route. I think it's actually the harder route. Being atypical is difficult, and I think it's worth it, but it can be really challenging to get off that predictable path. And I was someone who said, let's take this predictable path. That's the easier route for me at the time. I was actually invited to speak about a month ago at Rice University to a psychology class there. And after I spoke, there was a round of questions. And one of the questions was around advice for graduating seniors. What would you have done differently? And as cliche as this sounds, I tried to think of a different way to phrase it. But I said, make space for passions. Make space for something you're interested in. Now, I'm quick to caveat that with making space doesn't mean you should be irresponsible. It doesn't even mean you should do it for your profession. But when you're young, when you don't require a lot of money and your brain is telling you, take this safe, predictable financial path, I try to remind young people to make sure your heart also has a seat at that table, which it sounds kind of what you were battling with is exactly what I battle with and wish I would have changed a bit. Yeah. And you know what, Clay, the further I got into my sales career, because I ended up working in sales as a salesperson from 91 through 91 through 96 with a few different companies. And then in 97, I was approached by a startup company to be their Houston arm. And it was a telecom company. And so I was their Houston salesperson working out of the house, that kind of thing. Eventually with that company, I got promoted to an area sales director. As the company grew, I got promoted to a director. I was eventually running sales for the whole company as VP of sales. And it, you know, none of those promotions were anything I had. Go- My goals were all financially oriented. It was what do I need to sell to make the money I need to make to attain my quota? I'm hyper competitive. I want to beat all the other salespeople. Success to me was never getting promoted within the company. But whenever it was presented, when, when it got presented to me, I said, well, that sounds like a new challenge. You know, that's the other thing that, that I always had is I, I get bored very easily. So, you know, that's a new challenge. I'm going to try that. Where I was going with this was the further up the ladder I got, the more professional success people perceived I was having, the more and more miserable I got, one, and the more and more regret that I had by the time I was in my mid-30s that when I was 22, I didn't chase my passion. My passion at that time growing up as a kid and while I was in college was talking about sports, being immersed in sports. I really loved the radio, but I was so aimless getting out of college and I wanted to make money. I jumped at what I thought I could make the most money doing and what fit my skill set. And I was right about that. I was right about it fitting my skill set and making money. But I just, as I got older and older, I get had more and more regret over, God, I wish I'd tried that. In a professional sense, you weren't happy. At all. At all. At all. all. And And a lot of it was, I was a classic example of the Peter Principle too, where you rise to your level of incompetence. I rose to my level of incompetence. I was an excellent salesperson. I was a pretty good area sales director. I was not a good vice president of sales. I was not good at setting strategy for an organization and you know all the things that go with running an organization. With two, I, I don't feel I was good. There may be people that work for me that liked working for me, but I don't feel that fit my skill set. So the higher up I went in the corporate world and the more and more money I made too, I just, I, I, I got more and more miserable and it bled into my personal life and things like that. So it was, uh, I, yeah, I was in, I was in a, I was in a pretty dark place just professionally, you know, when well, it, we talk a 06, lot, 07. we talk a lot on this platform about goal setting and about what success is. Cause I think as athletes, it's, or 
forget athletes, as an elite performer in business or on the athletic field, it's natural to start to define success by your success on the athletic field or your financial success in business. And I've now had the luxury of bringing on social psychologists and performance psychologists to not just talk about goal setting and success, but talk about proper goal setting. Because one of my goals as a very young boy was to be on the Forbes 400. And I learned now that that's a shitty, shitty goal. Like it really is. There are so much better ways to, now you could end up on the Forbes 400, but your goal needs to be set somewhere which holds a lot more value. Yeah. And I think where we depart a little bit, I had a similar story where I made lots of money and defined success financially for lots of years, the houses I was buying, the trips I was taking first class around the world, whatever it may be. But I was very happy caring and confident and grateful and all of those things, it was professional fulfillment that I was lacking. It it may be more accurately just self-actualization. I knew I could be well above average in anything, as arrogant as that sounds, it's the truth. But I also knew to reach my full potential, I would need to be in a space where I was passionate and where I was fulfilled. And And that knowledge bothered me. And it led to me always feeling like an underachiever no matter what I did because I knew I'm never going to be as great as I could be professionally. I'll say this is like, I don't think I'm great yet, but I'm going to be great at this, at podcasting, because I'm passionate about the impact and the influence I've made. And I, like you, didn't learn that until my mid-30s. And I hope that what we're doing now, young people here, and again, I'll caveat it. Doesn't mean you should be irresponsible. Doesn't mean you should be entitled. Doesn't even mean you have to do it for your profession, but make some space for that passion or you're going to end up like we were in our mid thirties. With a lot of regret. We got a lot of money, but this is not fulfilling. I'm I'm not self-actualized. Yep. Yep. I just, yeah. Like there's another calling for me. And and, and so that's, that's where I was 15 years into my career, probably had achieved all of my actual quota bearing goals and financial goals. And I'm sitting there at age, you know, 36, 37, whatever I was at the time going is, you know, like, is this all there, is this all there is that kind of thing? Well, let's get into your progress into radio. So it started by getting serious about this hobby of calling into sports radio, Yeah, where you not only start doing this, but you had a lot of success with it. How did this I don't even know what to call it, but more than a hobby, this successful venture into calling in and giving your take into sports radio start. Yeah, well, to be clear, when we call it a venture, there was nothing financially attached to that. It was just the you know, hobby is a great way to hobby is a great way to put it because I was living in Houston like I am right now at the time. I had not moved somewhere along the way from 01 to 07. I actually moved away from Houston with when I was in the sales world. But about 1997, I was married. I uh, had not had kids yet. My kids would be born, three of them would all be born in the next couple of years. But I was in the car all the time because I was in sales. So I was listening to Sports Radio 610, which is the station I now work at. But I was a loyal listener to that station. The Jim Rome Show was a nationally, still is a nationally syndicated show hosted by Jim Rome that 610 decided to pick, was one of the very first outside of California markets that Jim Rome was in. And if, for people who who have not heard Jim Rome that are listening to this podcast, it's a very different sounding show. It's a very edgy sounding show. Jim is very opinionated. He's got a very he's got a voice that cuts through. It's a very caller driven show as well. He makes the callers a big part of the show to the point where the callers who are very very good callers become quote unquote legends on the show. The show is called The Jungle. He calls them Jungle Legends. If you're a really good caller, he almost makes you sort of a a co-star in a way, you know, maybe the, even the Howard Stern of sports radio. I don't know if that's going too far, but callers taking edgy takes. Would you no say doubt. Okay. He like that. That's a good parallel right there. You know, in terms of the magnitude of each, the impact that each have had within their own, within their own uh, genre. Jim Rome's the most influential sports talk host that there's been maybe ever. So I was a caller to that show. Well, one of the things on the Rome show that they do, the the show is so caller driven that they have one day a year where they invite the 25 or 30 best callers to call in that day and compete. Bring your best call of the year, you know, and on that show, your call, the calls basically consist of calling in, running your mouth for about two or three minutes on whatever you've got hot takes on. And then you hang up and then Jim gives his opinion on what you just said. That show each year, that once a year is called the smack off. 
And so I, I remember getting invited to the smack off for the first time. So I was, anyways, I was, so I'm driving around in my car all day, listening to sports radio, 610, going to client meetings and things like that. And I remember hearing the callers and I'm like, I could do that. I used to call sports talk all the time in WFAN and WTIC in Connecticut. I could do that. And I remember calling in the first time and I ran my mouth and he loved my call. And I'm like, this is great. And it gets very addictive at that point. I started calling a couple times a week. And at one point I get a nickname. I'm Shawnee the Cablin Asian from Houston because I had a take on Tiger Woods, who Tiger at one time said his ethnicity was Cablin Asian, part Caucasian, part black, part Indian, part Asian. I don't know why I had a take on that particular nomenclature, but for whatever reason, Rome started calling me Shawnee the Cablin Asian in Houston and the nickname stuck. And I got invited to the smack off for the first time in 1998. I'm like, this is so cool now. And meanwhile, I've got this whole parallel life going on an actual life with kids and a job and things like that. But this is sort of my escape from all that in a way, you know, listening to that show, listening to sports talk in general, calling that show, getting a little bit of notoriety. You know, that's where I learned that maybe, hey, maybe the part that I'm regretting not getting into sports is that you get a lot of adulation. You know, I'd go to listener events and things like that for 610 and people would know who I was. And that was kind of cool. And they take pictures with you and things like that. That was pretty sweet. Uh, but for the other 95% of my day, I'm a sales guy who's a father of three, you know, so it was it was interesting. So I got invited to the smack off in 98. I finished fourth my first time in it, you know, and then over the next handful of years, I won it once. I won it twice. I ended up winning it five times over a 10 year period. And so I really had some notoriety at that notoriety at that point to the point where Jim Rome actually offered me a job in 2003 to oh, write. Wow. Okay. He offered me a job in 2003. I was living in Denver at the time. I was an area sales director for my company in Denver at the time. And he offered me a job to move to California and write for him when he got Rome is Burning. It's a TV show that ESPN, yeah, yeah. ESPN hired him to do a TV show called Rome is Burning. And he offered me a job to move there and write for him. Obviously, I didn't take the job at the time because I was still ascending in my sales career. I had stock options and things like that. There would have been a lot that I was walking away from. I might have done it if I weren't married with kids at the time, but I was still looking at the world through a prism of being a responsible dad, first and foremost, which I think is a good thing. So I said no. I thought it was really cool that he offered me the job. Sure. I told everybody that Jim Rome offered me a job. That was really cool. And then I went back to what I was doing. So that's how I gained a lot of notoriety in the sports talk world was as a caller. I'm not a classically trained host. Um, the last sports talk show that I had actually hosted was probably in college sometime. But I was a caller and I was passionate. And that was that was a really it was a really cool kind of thing on the side was, that I was, was doing. Was that where it stopped? I mean, it's apparent that you have this unique ability and you're being noticed for this ability. Did you have any plan to take advantage of it? Did you have any plan to act on it? I mean, I do now that I'm thinking about it, social media didn't exist, which makes these things much easier. But was there any plan at all? My plan was to, and it wasn't like a plan where I'd sat down and wrote down the steps, but my general plan, because I was still friendly with a lot of the people at Sports Radio 610, even after I'd moved away from here from 01 to 07, and I'm still calling Jim Rome, but I'm doing it from Denver and Chicago and these other cities I lived in before I moved back here. And we'll get into me moving back here, I'm sure, because I moved back here to get into radio. But I was still I still stayed friendly with a lot of the people in Houston because I thought, hey, someday after these stock options cash in on this startup that I'm with and I've got a few million bucks or whatever it is from the stock options, then I can go do whatever I want to do. You that's know, that's the trap. Someday, that's the trap. Then, yeah. then I can go do I, if I just stay in because I always wanted to move back to Houston. I can move back to Houston. I'll take a weekend show on six ten, and I'll just work my way up. At that point, there were so many things that then happened from about oh five through oh seven that scuttled that plan. You know, the the company turned out wasn't going to be worth nearly as much as we thought it would be. The company got into lawsuits while I was the VP of sales because the AT&T was doing things to us that were, you know, it was like all these things where I'm going, okay, well, the whole stock option part of this where I'm going to have a few million bucks, that ain't working out. So I never had a real plan to act on it and get into radio. I had hope, you know, I had hope that someday I'll be somewhere financially where I can at least do it on the side. You know, I can at least get it, dip my toe in the water that way. Executing it that way never happened, but that might have been the best thing that ever happened to me that it didn't happen that way. Well, I'm incredibly fascinated with this idea of how one identifies the right path and how you come to the realization that you're on the wrong path, especially in your case when you're on a comfortable path. 
And I'm also interested on how you find the courage to get off that path. And for you, it happened on a particular date. Life forced it upon you on February 23rd, 2007. So take us through that life event that happened in February of 2007 that kind of forced the path upon you. It, that's exactly, that's exactly forced upon me was exact as you're kind of laying out, you know, leading into my story, I'm going, man, I, it, this wasn't something where I said, I, it was a ballsy move by me to say, I'm walking away from this and I'm going to go do radio. It was forced on me. February 23rd, 2007, I was VP of sales for, uh, for our company. This company is called United Asset Coverage. It was a telecommunications services company. And I got called into the CEO's office to find out that our company was being bought. And the company that was buying us at the time didn't need me because they had a VP of sales already. You know, they were just going to blend UAC, our company, into their company and they didn't need me anymore. So for the first time in my life, I was getting fired. Um, so here's your severance package. And that was it. You know, it was 10 years, this company I helped build up and that, that was pretty much it. My last thing I had to do before I walked out the door that day was I had to call the seven directors that reported to me at the time and give them the same news I just got, which was, Hey, we're getting bought and um, polish up your resume, that kind of thing. What happened then was, though, on that same day, one of the directors I had, his name's Joe Garza, still lives here in Houston. He was my Houston director. And I gave him the news and he said, okay, well, you know, we'll roll with the punches here. But he says to me, you know some people at 610, right? I said, yeah, I still keep in touch with them. He said, can you forward my resume to them? I think I may get out of this telecom and go into radio sales, at least explore it. Can you send my resume to... So I did. I sent his resume to a friend of mine named Chance McLean, who worked for Sports Radio 610 as the producer of the morning show at the time. And I sent him Joe's resume in an email. And at the bottom of the email, I put, P.S., carve out a couple hours for me on the weekend. You know, like we've always talked about, I'm, I'm, maybe I'll move back to... Joking around. Maybe I, I need a job too. Maybe I'll move back to Houston and I can do couple hours of radio on the weekend. Because Chance was always a guy who told me, you should do this. You would be good at this. All this Jim Rome stuff that you do, you would be good at this. So I send that to Chance. Don't think much of it after that. Get in my car, drive home that night. I pull into my driveway. I'm sitting in my car and it's, I'm fired. I'm in the middle of getting divorced at the time. And I'm sitting there in my driveway, this big house, in Naperville, Illinois, and it's February, and I look down at the temperature gauge, you know, the, the outside temperature, and it's, I'll never forget this, Clay, it was minus 11 degrees outside. And I, looking at the number negative 11 for the weather outside with everything that was swirling was so overwhelming in that moment. I'm thinking to myself, this, this is it. Like, you know, short of like the day my mom died, like short of that, like this is the this this is the worst day that I'm having right now, you know. And this and this might be the worst day that I have for a while. Like if I'm sitting there in that seat and I'm going, this is the bad time. I'm feeling very anxious, but I'm okay. If this is as bad as it gets, I'll be all right. But I remember thinking, like, but I've never had to do this before. Like, just pick up the pieces of everything in that moment. And at that very moment, my phone rings, and it's Chance McLean. And I ask him, hey, did you get Joe's resume? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not why I'm calling. The reason I'm calling is there's a bunch of us here at 610 that are going to be leaving 610 to go start another sports station in town. At the time, would have been the fourth sports station in town. And you know, if you're in a spot where you can do it, your name's come up to, to maybe give a tryout to, to maybe do the afternoon show or something like that. Like, How crazy is that that you sent me that email and we were just talking about you we figured, you know, with being the fourth sports station, I know you're not a truly trained radio host, but you got all that Jim Rome stuff. It'd be something different. And I said, dude, I said, I was just literally sitting in this car for the, and for the hundredth time in the last month, regretting not getting into sports talk radio, like literally sitting here thinking like, why didn't I do that? Why? Cause all this misery I've been feeling that's been pent up over these last few years has resulted in me getting fired. Like it's one thing if all that misery results and all of a sudden you know, that there's the, the, you're at the end of the rainbow, you know, there's the pot of gold. It was the opposite of that, like in every aspect of my life at that point. But here's Chance calling me on the phone with the one lifeline that I've been hoping for over the last few years, which is, hey, someone wants to give you a few weeks to give this thing a go at this new station. He said, are you interested? And I said, oh, dude, I'm unemployed. I'm interested in anything right now, you know? Well, and if I could make a quick observation, 
listening to your story, it sounds like you had kind of fallen from victory to victory to victory for 35 years. And I got to imagine that this was maybe the first really challenging set of setbacks in your life. And I got to imagine that compounds things is going, I've, I've never felt this. And you're going through an insanely difficult sequence of events. Let me ask you this. Do you think your mental state played a role in your decision to take on more risk? No doubt. No doubt. He chance caught me at a, at a time where I was much more willing to do risky things, you know, on paper, what I did, and, and so just to put a, a bow on that part of the story, Chance told me someone else is going to call you in the next couple of days with more details, but it's cool that you're interested and let's keep the ball rolling. Five minutes later, my phone rings and it's John Granado, who I compete with now <laughs> in the mornings. You know, he was the morning host at 610 at that time. He was leaving to go help start up Gal Media is what it wound up being. John asked me the same thing. Are you interested? And I said, Absolutely. On paper, Clay, what I decided to do at that time would probably be definitely categorized as irresponsible, probably not great parenting either, if you want to know the truth, because I chose to move back to Houston. My kids were nine, nine and eight at the time, I think, and they stayed in Chicago with my ex-wife. I moved back to Houston to get into radio, probably taking about an 80% pay cut from what I was used to making the previous few years. On paper, it was... It was a huge risk, an absolutely huge risk. But I was at such a stage in my life that I said to myself, if I don't try this, I will regret it forever. And I don't know that I could put a dollar value or a parental value on not at least trying it. So I moved back to Houston. And what I told myself on that long drive back down here by myself in a U-Haul, it was all just 16 hours of negotiating with myself. You know what I mean? Driving down here. I knew I was going to be a radio host at least for a little while until they, you know, until they found out whether I was good at it or not. But what I ended up telling myself on that ride down here is give it four months. Cause at the time we were going to go on the air like in August. So like give it the rest of the year, you know, give it the rest of 2007. If you suck at it, you can always move back to Chicago and get a job in sales. Like what I was doing if at the end of the day, I chased it and I wasn't good at it and I've got to go back to being some dude that just gets a paycheck and supports his family, that's fine. There's a lot of people that go through life doing that and that's great. It had driven me to a place of misery, especially because I felt like I had potential to do something else. Now I'm getting this phone call to at least try what it is I did, what it is I wanted to do and dreamt of. And the money at that point just didn't matter to me. Like I just had to go try it. And as it turns out, you know, I said, I'll give myself three or four months, whatever it was. It was the rest of 2007. If I'm bad at it, I'll move back to Chicago. And I don't know if I was even good at it right out of the shoot, but they weren't firing me. And I was getting sponsors. And then I felt like I was getting better at it. And then some of the goals I started to set for myself was, okay, I've got to do a show where I'm in the one chair. You know, it's a two-person show. You have the one chair and the two. You're in the one chair on this podcast right now. You know, you're the guy steering the ship. I didn't know that. All yeah, right. yeah. You're the guy steering. Well, you're actually, yeah, you're, you're, you're always, it's your podcast. So you're in the one chair all the time. I'm just the guest. But I wanted to do a show where I was in the one chair. I wanted to do a show where I was in the two chair. I wanted to do a solo show. So any chance I got to do any type of show on that station, I would do because I wanted to build up my skill set. Because I realized about two years into working for that station that I had to, eventually after I plowed through all of my savings to make this dream work, like plowed through, and I'm running up credit cards, like I'm taking second jobs. I managed Jake's Philly Steaks over on Chimney Rock at night after my show just to make sure I could pay my child support. Oh, wow. I mean, I did. Wow. I, I I learned along the way that I could write. I started writing for the Houston Press. I still do to this day. I write a, a column every day for the Houston Press because back in 2009, they would pay me 20 bucks a post every day to do a post. I needed money that bad. Like Eventually, the first year, you're chasing the dream and it's great. But then you're getting envelopes from creditors and you're getting envelopes from lawyers and you're getting calls from your ex-wife and you're having to fly back and forth to see your kids and you're having to fly them down here and then the bills start to pile up. And you're second guessing and you're dealing with doubt 100%. and insecurity and you're going, I used to make X and now I'm making, is this the right decision? Is this the right decision? Yeah. And I was so, 
I was so sure after about a year, year and a half that I can make this work. I'm good enough to do this now. You know, it took me that long to realize I can do this. Now I've got to make it work. Now I've got to figure out anything I can do. I got to stay in the game. I just got to keep my jersey. You know, I just got to stay in the game. I got to bide my time, whatever I need to do to make ends meet. And man, like if you could look at my financial situation a year or two into radio, it was dire, man. Like it was really, really dire. Like I said, I was taking second jobs. I was doing anything I could. Well, I think to go back to the beginning of our conversation, if you don't have that passion that we talked about, there's no way you go through that. There's no way you go, because I'm not anywhere near that. I'm in a great financial position, but I still have those thoughts all the time. Like, what am I doing? What's my net worth doing? Should I go back into this? I find it incredibly inspirational to hear that you were going through all that, but decided to stick it out. And it just stems from having that passion. Before we get there, there's one topic you mentioned that I think I'm more interested in than anything we'll discuss today. And that's your kids. I jokingly tell my wife that she's got a free pass for 16 years because there's no way I'm leaving and living in a different house than my two girls. From my perspective, leaving your kids had to be the most difficult part of chasing your dream. How did that play into your decision? And did that almost stop you from pursuing this dream of yours? Yeah, of course it did. You know, of course it did. Yeah, that's that easily the hardest part. You know, the, the the hardest part, the hardest part was that macro was that the micro hardest part, easily the hardest part of that j- part of my journey was every time I would have to bring my kids to the airport when they would come visit me here. They were, like I said, nine, nine and eight when I moved back down here. So every time for the first three or four years, they're still at very sensitive ages for that kind of thing. And kids are very resilient. You learn that through any through divorce. You learn that just conventional divorce. You learn the kids are pretty resilient, more resilient than maybe we give them credit for sometimes. But this was like this was divorce on steroids, probably for them because of the the geographic element to it. But the part that of all the things through this journey that I never, ever, ever want to relive again, it's drop. It's taking my kids to the gate at the airplane. I mean, I don't think I've ever told anybody that before, you know, that the, the what's, and I'm glad you asked me that because it's really good to, you know, you feel my kids are all great kids. Now they're all, you know, they're out of college and they're doing awesome. But the, the most painful part of the whole thing wasn't the credit card bills that you're getting in the mail envelopes from your ex-wife's lawyer about this is where we are now with the divorce proceedings it wasn't listeners who tell you you suck. Certainly it wasn't that. Like I can I can live with with all that. It wasn't even like physical pain that I went through at times. Like I'm in much better shape physically now than I was. Like I let myself go physically those first few years in radio because you're you know, you're just you're you're so sedentary and you're it was dropping my kids off at the gate to send them back up to Chicago because you could just you could see the pain on their face. It's the worst. So that's why when you asked me earlier about heroes, like I like like my kids are heroes to me, you know, like that's, those are, those are my heroes, you know, because they, they never through the whole journey up to today, you know, like to this very minute, they've never once, at least openly to me. And we've had very frank conversations, my kids and I, about a lot of things through the years. They've never begrudged me doing what I did, like moving back here to chase my dream. In fact, I think at least with my two sons, and I only say that I have two sons and a daughter. I separate them from my daughter, not because she's bitter about it or anything, but they're huge sports fans. My two sons, I think they reached a point where they would have been mad at me for getting out of radio because it was really fun for them when they would come down here. And I think it was fun for them like to tell their friends what their dad did and things like that. I mean, which is all well and good. It didn't make me feel any more guilty or any any less guilty, I should say. It didn't make me feel any less guilty that I was there was so much geographical separation with them. It got easier, I think, probably to do what we were doing in when FaceTime and the ability to see your kids when you're remote from them is different than just doing a phone call. That helps. But I know I'm giving you a long answer about my kids here, Keep but it, it is, is the it, it, it was easily the hardest part of the whole thing. And I think probably one of the things I'm most proud of and most thankful for my ex-wife is she's a really good mom. Like we did, we were oil and water as it turns out as husband and wife, but she was and is a really good mom. So I'm really, I'm very lucky that, that as a really functioned as a single mom for them up there 
in Chicago while I was down here. She did a really good job. So yeah, that was that was by far the the hardest part of the whole well, thing. Well, like I said, I think when I was preparing, this is the thing I'm most interested in, and it's because it touches me the closest. And I think that was beautifully said, Sean. If if my kids are my heroes, aren't the marketing tag for this episode? I don't know what is, and I've never thought of my kids that way. But to hear you say that, just and my kids are two and five, but like. Yeah, they do things all the time, even at that age, that I would describe them as my hero. And I've never framed them in that way. I think that's a beautiful sentiment. I think it's a beautiful way to say it. I think it's eloquent. I I love that we went there. And I had a dad once say that went through a similar situation that he believes the dad is actually missing out more than the kids. Like you mentioned, kids are resilient, but the dads are missing out. And I do understand through a mutual friend of ours that you were adamant about taking breaks in the studio to put your kids to bed on the phone, to do your FaceTime, to be a big part of their lives. That 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 says something about you. Is you're like, guys, we're taking a break. My kids are going to bed. I'm going to go call. And that was a big part of your life here in Houston. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I wanted to, as much as I could, shrink that that geographical barrier that we had and it was never going to be normal you know like it was and they, and they they live in a town lived in a town up in Chicago Naperville Illinois which is you know one of the most affluent towns with great schools but with not a lot of divorced families you know it's a lot of family the divorce rate's very low in that town because I'm not saying people are any happier than anything else but as far you know, the nuclear family thrives in communities like that, at least outwardly. Uh, who knows what goes on behind closed doors with a lot of families? But point being, that had to be hard for them too. You know, being the kids whose dad lives in. Forget about what I do as for a living, being cool. Like to have to go to different things on parent-teacher night or different events, and their dad's not there. And it's not that he passed away or anything like that. He's down in Houston and he's on the radio. I would imagine that there's. I know when I would go up there and visit them and go to like my daughter's soccer games and my son's football games and things like that, I would feel very inadequate as a parent going to those things. Again, that's a lot of the negotiation that goes on with yourself. That That's the magnitude of the dream that I was chasing and how passionate I felt about not only doing sports talk radio, but excelling at it and somehow someday getting back to where from a practicality standpoint, I'm making the money that I used to make so I can support my kids and put them through college and things like that. But the passion for what I was doing was such that I was even willing to live with the inadequacy that I felt when I would go visit them in Naperville. Like that was hard for me to go to games and things like that, knowing that these are probably all dads who are in some way looking at me as, you know, some sort of like some sort of deadbeat in some yeah. way. At you the know? end of the day, you, you made a choice. Yeah. And who's to say if it's a right or wrong choice? Man, I I thank you for going there with me. Yeah. Because like I said, I think that's more important. And I hope your kids hear that. And I hope my kids hear that, that as dads, as athletes, as elite performers, these are the things we really think about and are what are most important. We talk about success earlier and we talked about value earlier and Another thing that happens as you get older into your 30s is you start realizing that that financial success is is not what's valuable. The most valuable things in your life in your life are never going to refer to you as the what did you call it the number one chair or right. the lead man on a radio station. Right. My kids are never going to refer to me as COO or head of product. Anyway, yeah. Thanks for going there with me. Of Let's course. get back on track. At what point do you start to realize here in Houston that something special is happening? I would say after a couple of years on the air, the, the most fun I've ever had in a job anywhere, period. And I love 610 where I work now. I think it's awesome. Um, I have great bosses. It's a great station. I'm accomplishing all the things that I want to accomplish there right now. But the most fun I've ever had at a job was the first two years in radio because I probably was completely unaware of just how good or bad I was at radio. It was such a departure from what I'd been doing the previous 15 years. I was so miserable doing what I was doing. That in a weird way, it, it was such a departure from that. It was so, and it's radio, so it's it's fun to begin with. Um, so that's the most fun I ever had. But again, through the bills piling up and realizing, okay, I've I've got a. It's cool that it's fun and everything. I need a plan now to where I get back to making 
the money that I was making, but I got to make up that 80%. You know what I mean? And I got to get back there. It's my responsibility to get back there as a, as a parent. It's my responsibility to get back to that. So my kids can have everything that I feel like I should be providing for them. So it was probably about two years in at 1560 was the station. It was probably about two years in. So 2009, where I realized the only way that I'm ever going to get back to making what I need to make in order to at least start to reapproach the lifestyle that I was in before is to get over to Sports Radio 610. You know, the same station that I was a caller to and a listener to, the same station that the people who gave me my first job in radio, they left that station to start the one that hired me. That's where I have to get if I'm going to keep this dream alive. I can't, I just practicality will not allow me to keep the dream alive at this station. My audience isn't big enough. The state, you know, the, it's a, it's sort of a mom and pop shop compared to big corporate radio. I don't know that I'll ever get there doing that. So, so about 2009 is where I started to feel like, okay, I'm good at this. Now I got to figure out how to get over to 610. And this is where, this is where the, the goal setting that I talked about earlier, that the first few mentors that I had in my professional career really helped taking some of those things from my sales career and then applying them to radio in terms of, okay, I'm basically selling myself now. You know, how do I sell myself to the powers that be at Sports Radio 610 to let them know that I'm the right person? When the time comes to hire a new host, I'm the right person. I attacked it the same way I would attack a sales process. Who's the decision maker? What are their goals and objectives? You know, how do I think my skill set fits in there? So I attacked it that way. Starting in 2009, 2010, I would seek out Gavin Spittle was his name at the time. He was the program director at 610. And at the Texans games, you know, the 610 was, still is the flagship for the Houston Texans. I would go find Gavin and I would just make sure I said hi to him, shook his hand and said hello as much as I could. Networking, everything sales. And so I would go say hi to him. And I remember the first time that I said hi to him that he said he had listened to my show. And he said, you know, I listened to you and John Harris was my co-host at the time. He's the sideline reporter for the Texans now, ironically. He said, I listened to you and Johnny. You mean, you guys sound good. You know, like if you... He gave us a few, gave me a few pointers and, you know, almost made it sound like if I ever get you in my system, you know, almost like a coach. But I thought that was really cool that the sport, the program director at 610 not only listened to the show, but liked what he heard. At least he told me he did. And so that was around 2009, 2010. Well, in this radio world, Clay, like there's got to be an opening for you to, you know, it's not like it's not, there's not a help wanted sign in front of radio stations. You just walk in and you interview the musical chairs have to start going and a, a spot has to open up. And unfortunately in 2012, one of the morning spots opened up at 6:10. So I interviewed for it with Gavin, a great interview. And he gave, and he, in that interview process, he gave me a lot of advice and even advice on my contract. He, Cause eventually they couldn't hire me at that time because my contract had a non-compete in it. So he made some suggestions about, you know, boy, if you didn't have this, this, or this, you're a lot more hireable by another station. It was really productive for me from that standpoint, but also very productive for me. And then I got in front of him and I got to tell him, here's why me and here's why I'm passionate about it and all those things. Disappointed I didn't get the job, but I felt like, okay, I made a big enough impression where if the musical chairs start moving again, you know, sometimes you're not interviewing for that job. As it turns out, you're interviewing for the the next job or the one after that. So I was disappointed I didn't get the one in 2012, but fortunately the musical chair started moving again and the afternoon spot was opening up at 610 in 2013 and Gavin wasn't there anymore, but the program director was a guy named Ryan McCredden who was sort of a Gavin protege. So I think he knew of me through Gavin and I can't remember if it was me who reached out or Ryan who reached out to me, but the bottom line was we ended up getting together and went through the interview process and, and, um, and I wound up getting the job. So it took me, it took me from the time, from the time I wrote down get to 610 on my, you know, my notebook. It took me five years. And how many years in radio? Uh seven total. What a story of perseverance. Seven total. That's incredible. Yeah, John. seven total. That's incredible. Like, and and that whole time, I'm that whole time I'm I'm grinding financially, you know, like I'm I'm grinding and I'm and back your questioning. I know because I've been there. Yeah, where you're going like, what am I doing? Yeah. is this the right path? For I'm seven passionate years. about this, but does this make sense? Should I be chasing a passion for my profession? Yep. Yeah. Well, let's go here. 
you're now the lead of, I believe, the top-rated sports talk radio show in Houston, yet I know you still consider yourself as a fan with a microphone. Do you think that mindset plays a large role in your success? I think so. I I think it helps me connect with the audience. That's what this medium's about. It's about building the biggest audience. I think it's about a few things. I think it's about building the biggest audience that you can and making as big an impact as you can on your community because we have a platform. And, I, and that's what I love about working where I work now top down, there's a real focus within our company on positively impacting the community, whether it's through charity or whether it's through times like Harvey or the big freeze that we had last year. You know, those are times where I've always wanted to be somebody who found my way to make it up to the station so I could be on air. And we're not even talking about sports. We're just telling people where they can go donate blood or where the Red Cross is going to be and things like that. So that's a really cool part of it. But to answer your question about being a fan with a with a with a microphone. I think it helps me connect with the audience a little bit more. I think I think my story, you know, there's a lot of things about my story that are very unrelatable, but the relatable parts of my story are the fact that hey, I'm passionate about sports just like you the Houston fan is. You know, I'm I'm your voice. This I look at these teams through a similar prism that you do. And obviously it's not a totally similar prism because at least in the case of the Texans, I do their game day radio stuff. So I actually, you know, I work for the team as well. But in terms of my passion about the team and in terms of how I feel about it too, like I don't, I don't let my work for them affect my opinions or my passion about them at all. Like I'll come on on Monday and say what I thought stunk about the game or who I think needs to get demoted or fired or things like that and credit the Texans. They're really, really good about letting us, me and the other hosts at our station have our opinions on that stuff. They're great to work with. But I think that's the biggest thing is, again, back to everything being sales. In some way, in, in many ways, my listenership is the customer and my background, the fact that maybe I'm not a classically trained radio host helps me connect with that consumer a little bit more. Well, I think one of the reasons that podcasts have taken off the way they are is because of the authenticity and because of the community. When someone's selling an ad on a podcast, you feel like it's someone in your tribe that's selling you the ad. So I think that absolutely plays into your appeal. And I'm strategic asking you that. I want to learn because I think the fan with a microphone metaphor is pertinent to me, I'm, I told you earlier, I'm really working solely with curiosity and optimism here. I don't have any background in media, but your obsession with sport is similar to my obsession with understanding in progress and beautiful conversations. I'm moved by these beautiful conversations that I think we're having today. And I think that authenticity is key. And I find it interesting that you've kept your why, so to speak, top of mind for so long, because I think that's imperative to success. Let's end it with this question. You started to get there. One of the quotes I found from you is the things you're most proud of in your radio career have nothing to do with sports. You go on to cite the civic duty that's implicit with broadcasting, the human interaction, the ability to touch people. I've had that similar experience here in a short amount of time that will make the examined athlete a success regardless of whether it's a monumental financial success, the stories that people share, the private testimony that friends have reached out and shared and given to me, the connections I've made, they're moving in a way that I never would have found in my previous pursuit. So I want to end by letting you share some of the moments from your career that you're most proud of. Yeah, I think, well, I, we, I just touched on one of them there. You know, when disaster has struck the city, whether it was Ike back in 2008, my first year in radio, and I'm the one person, because I had no family here at the time, I said, I'll stay up at the station and do what we need to do. So I, you know, I was the voice on the station during Ike on the, my old station. When Harvey hit, I was one of the voices that said, you know what, we're staying up here. If we got to stay up here five days, we're staying up here five days. So I think I'm proud of that balance. You know, the, you know, the end of the day, the goals of the job are about building an audience and building sponsorships, you know, making sure that the money is coming in on the radio show. But the civic duty part of it, I'm really, really proud of that. I get very proud when people because I can relate to this, when people come up to me either at a Texans game or they come up to me at a restaurant or out and about, they see me or whatever, and they say, I'm in the car all day. You get me through my day. I've lived the misery of having you know, a, a nine to five that you're not happy in. I think a majority of the people probably go through life doing something 
throughout the day that they wish they were doing something else. I know that because I did it for 15 years. But I also know the escapism that comes with the medium that I'm in now, having been on their side of it. So when they come up to me and they say to me, you provide my escape, I know what they're needing to escape. That's the biggest compliment I can get. So I'm always proud every time that happens. Super proud every time that happens. I'm proud of the fact that I took the plunge to get into radio. I persevered through it. I set a goal to get to 610. Once I got to 610, I was in afternoons. My goal was to get to mornings. I got to mornings. My goal was to do stuff for the Texans. I do pre and post for the Texans. I'm mystified sometimes that I've been able to check all of those boxes. I'm proud of the uniqueness of my story, you know, and that it and that there's a lot of relatable parts to it for people. I don't think you have to be wanting to get into radio to understand the importance of networking and the importance of communicating with people, the importance of parenting. Like all of those things are all wrapped up in my story. So I'm I'm proud of the relatability of my story. I think most of all, I'm proud that my kids have come out the other side of this three really good human beings. All three either going to or went to really good schools. They're all three I say kids, they're, you know, 23, 23 and 22 now. So I guess still kids to me. They'll always be kids to me, but they're, they're all great kids. I mean, that's, that's the thing I'm most proud of. And that's, I think hopefully a relatable thing for a lot of people too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the checklist right there, man. Sean, that's great stuff, man. I mean, this whole hour has been great stuff and I appreciate you sitting down with me, but I appreciate more than anything, your honesty and your frankness. So yeah. thanks for coming in. I hope it was as much fun for you as it was for me. It was great. I always love telling these stories and I've loved learning your story as well as you and I have been chatting, Clay. So I, I really, I'm, it's an honor to be on here, especially after hearing who some of the other guests that you've had. This was really, really cool for me. I'd love to do it again sometime. Thank you, Sean.